Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, everyone. Sorry we've not done a live show for quite a while, but also late, obviously, predictably. Uh, we were just getting, you know, we have we have a lot of guests today and a lot of excellent guests, I should say, at that. Uh, so we just had to get everyone's, everyone's, you know, just sort out a few technical details. We've done it, though. We got through it. Uh, one of our guests said they need a stiff whiskey after the process. So maybe we'll all just be violently inebriated by the end of the show. Um, we've got so much to talk about today. Later, we will be talking to the brilliant um, Joan Salter, who was a Holocaust survivor, many of you may have seen, who challenged uh, Suella Braverman um, about her horrific uh, language about refugees and migrants, the dehumanizing rhetoric, and an attempt to, I, I think, teach maybe the unteachable, sadly, the Home Secretary about the lessons from history about what happens when vulnerable minorities are stripped uh, of their basic humanity. It's such an important thing to talk about. We'll also later be talking about uh, people may have seen in Scotland has been a reform to gender recognition. Um, that has now the, the British government is talking about blocking that. We also have comments from Keir Starmer on the issue, which we'll also uh, be talking about. We'll also be joined by the brilliant Ellie Mayer Hagen, my friend and compañero. We'll talk about just general politics stuff. <laughs> Lots to talk about. Um, but before I bring in my first guest, just again, if you're watching live, click on the YouTube link if possible. It just helps the show more. I know lots of you prefer to watch it on Facebook and there's very little I can do about it, to be honest with you. But if you want to click on the YouTube link, that would be nice. Click like. You click like. Leave some comments. Um, uh, I will always read through them. We'll also put up all, if you super chat, you can support the show that way. And I'll read out everyone's super chats at the end. I will remember. Otherwise, I'll be thrown out of window by... Um, my colleagues um and also you keep the show on the road with patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 we're not bankrolled by billionaires we're doing as you can see videos every day at the moment uh, which is a lot of time and effort uh, but the videos are doing very well and um, on on youtube alone uh, last uh, month uh, well over a million and a half on facebook about three million on the podcast um tens of thousands and also on Instagram the videos have been reaching hundreds of thousands of views as well so we're reaching a very large number of people and that's all thanks to you and um, but also we have we're going to go back we've do, started our interviews again we've got an interview with Hajin Chang the brilliant um, economist uh, who has written a book about called Edible Economics about how it's basically comparing terrible economics to terrible food it's quite clever but don't also good food so don't don't read it on an empty stomach. Um, and we're going to start our documentaries again. You remember we've done lots of documentaries like when we went behind the scenes at Conservative Party Conference. I don't know what I did in a past life. Something very unpleasant. Uh, as well as Labour Conference. We've done videos, of course, about precarious workers, about things like um, social cleansing from working class communities. And um, what we try and do, obviously, elevate voices that otherwise aren't heard, put a spotlight on issues that otherwise ignored. And also challenge, of course, those running the country and the government to be. We don't work for the Labour Party. 
clearly. Um, so yeah, if you want to support us on patreon.com forward slash seven Joe's 84, you keep all of this, the podcast, the videos, everything on the road, documentaries, interviews, and so on. Right, because we start late, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring in the brilliant Maxine Wade, who is a striking NHS nurse. Um, Maxine, great to see you. How are you doing? I'm all right, Owen. Thanks. How are you? Very well. Where, by the way, because I'm a plastic northerner, um, you're are you where where am I speaking to you from? I should have checked before. Very impressive. I'm, I'm from Leeds. Are you from Leeds? Lovely. Well, I'm a plastic Yorkshireman too, because I was born in Sheffield, but you all are right. Ooh. When I go when I go up north, everyone just says I sound really posh, so I can't really can't really milk that anymore. <laughs> Actually, I just want to start with something, and um, which was a uh so it's, these are reports in the media. Um, oops, I didn't, sorry. We ran out of time to, to we can see, normally what we do is we sort of the images so you can see them a bit better than this, but never mind. It's about a, t- a Tory cabinet split over NHS pay. And so there's talks there about actually the health secretary thinks he's going to have to give ground to striking NHS workers. Oh, we're echoing a bit. I'm not sure why. Oh, no, we're not echoing anymore. Um, what do you think of that? Do you think... It shows, actually, because Rishi Sunak is trying to do this whole face down the unions, face down the workers. But it seems to me that actually maybe they're a little bit rattled. What do you think? Well, I think you're exactly right, Owen. I think they're very rattled because I think they've realised that nursing staff, along with uh, ambulance staff and what it looks like is soon to be the junior doctors as well, um, are feeling very fed up and angry at the moment in this country. And I don't think that we're going to give up this fight um, for pay restoration anytime soon. Um, as a lot of people will be aware, the reports in the media of the crisis within the NHS, particularly in A&E, um, Rishi Sunak can pander to party politics all he wants and double down on this anti-union rhetoric, but the only way they're going to get out of this anytime soon is if they start coughing up a decent amount of money um, to retain NHS staff because... This is a crisis that needs dealing with sooner rather than later, definitely. And um, I'm not surprised that there's infighting within the Conservatives, but unfortunately, we need them to work together and action this because it's patients that are suffering, ultimately, and patients are suffering on a daily basis because of the, the pressures on the NHS as a result of their policies. Absolutely. Now, the average nurse has lost £5,000 a year in their income since the government came to power in 2010. Can you just talk through just what is what the kind of circumstances facing nurses at the moment? What would you kind of set out as the key big issues? So we talk about pay, the impact of that, but just in the round, what what's the kind of general crisis of nursing as you see it? Well, I think it's quite a complex crisis. I mean, ultimately, this dispute is about pain. Obviously, we're in the midst of the cost of living crisis. A lot of people are struggling, particularly nursing, because it's not very well paid when you compare it to other graduate level professions. And, you know, we're aware there's nurses, unfortunately, who are having to access food banks. And there are NHS hospital trusts who have opened food bank schemes within the trust. So the NHS trusts themselves are aware that, There is an issue with nurses being able to make ends meet. Um, The fact that you have to pay to park at work, extortionate prices if you want to manage to get your break and eat at work. Um, And obviously the cost of living, the rise in gas fuel prices, you know, a lot of nursing staff are just ordinary working class people and they are feeling the pinch just as everybody else is. But although it is about pay, I think, Owen, I think the main problem with nursing at the minute is... We just do not have enough nursing staff to deliver 
a safe quality of care that patients deserve. And I think ultimately this is what is driving people like myself to take strike action because you go in every day, you know, we work really long 12-hour shifts and you want to go in and give the best standard of care that you can. But we're not able to do that because we don't have enough staff and we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough beds to get the patients in and we don't have enough social care places or care home beds to get the patients out. And ultimately that has a really bad impact on staff and nurses and staff morale. And I think the issue around pay doesn't just exist in a vacuum. Because to be honest, when me and my colleagues discuss pay and say, you know, we'd get more money doing something else, it's always at the end of a really horrible shift where you've been run ragged and you've probably not had your break. It's 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 that factored into everything else is yes, we want pay restoration because we are struggling, but also we want to be valued for the job that we do because it is very difficult work. Um so yeah, I think I've touched on it briefly, but there's a lot of issues within nursing that the government needs to listen to and need to start addressing. So, I mean, this point, I mean, as you point out, the vacancies I mean, is now up to about 50,000 nursing vacancies in England alone, which is about 10% missing, basically. So, I mean, how would you, just for people, just be very clear in terms of, you know, this strike isn't just about clearly it's very important for the nurses themselves who are going on strike, but it's about the NHS, isn't it? Because if you don't pay nurses properly, if you allow their real pay to fall, then you're not going to firstly retain nurses yeah. who will feel demoralized and leave the profession and you won't be able to recruit nurses and then you end up with the standard of care falling so when be, when the government says well we won't have as much money for frontline services but nurses are frontline services and you end up with fewer yeah. nurses because you're not paying them properly well that's exactly right owen and another problem which i feel like the media don't talk about enough is the more nurses that leave the less nursing staff we have to change the future cohorts of nursing students coming through. And when you lose staff, when nurses either leave the profession or they leave the NHS or leave the United Kingdom, we're not just losing a nurse. And I feel like this gets lost in the debate a lot. We're often lo losing people with years of experience. And, you know, you don't learn nursing overnight. Nursing is something where you're constantly learning. You're constantly developing your skills and your practice. So when we have so many nurses leaving the profession, it leaves such a massive skill gap, which then in turn directly impacts patient care. And this is the thing is this strike I believe is for the future of nursing in this country and the NHS because we we are you know we are the front line as you say and we are the people that are with the patients more than any of the other profession not thinking any of the other professions it is collaborative work but we are a, a stalemate almost where we need to see drastic change and I think what's quite ironic is <laughs> I feel like this is all part of the long game of the Tories sort of privatising the NHS. Mm. However, even in a private healthcare service, you need nurses and there's just not going to be enough of them. And ultimately, we want to retain people and recruit nurses into the job because when we're able to do it well, it's a fantastic job. Um, but we, yeah, we, we need generations of nurses or we're just going to not have a functioning healthcare system in one of the richest countries in the world, ironically. Before I finally ask you about Labour and some of the comments made by Keir Starmer today, I just also wanted to ask you in terms of some of the government just think face the nurses down. Basically, eventually they'll get fed up of going on strike. Um, 
so I want to hear your thoughts on that. But also, there's talk of a one-off payment. Do you think, in terms of Rishi Sunak giving a one-off payment to nurses? So, so just on those two issues, what, what would you say? I think the one-off payment is a bit of a slap in the face, to be honest. I mean, if it came with pay restoration and actual pay rise, but it's just a drop in the ocean. You know, at the end of the day, our bills are still going to go up again in April. The cost of living is going to continue to rise. It's not going to do enough to... It just feels like just throwing a simple amount of money and not facing the key issue is we need pay restoration to be recognised the profession and the degree-level educated professionals that we are. Um, and everybody that I've spoken to is not willing to accept a one-off payment. We want a real terms pay rise. And I, as you said your previous point, I don't think we're going to give up this fight easily because ultimately we're doing this because we care um, very deeply and we know that we cannot lose this fight because if we lose any more nurses or if we lose the NHS to full privatisation, then what have we got left to fight for, really? Very beautifully put. Just very finally, Keir Starmer today was on the Lord Cunnersburg show. I just want to say, show a little 23-second clip. Um, okay. I'm, I'm actually going to attach a health warning to this afterwards. You'll see why. ...we've put forward is, would it not be possible to consider self-referral so that individuals don't have to go to a doctor, uh, use up a doctor's time in order mm -hmm. to get referred to specialist help? If you've got back pain and you want to see a mm -hmm. physio, it ought to be possible, I think, to self-refer. If you've got internal bleeding and you just need a test, there ought to be a way that uh, doesn't involve going to see a GP. Internal bleeding. <laughs> Please go to your doctor. I mean, if somebody could predict that they had internal bleeding, you know, get them working in radiography. What? What's the test? Is it like, do they swish around so they've got blood? What? I don't. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? It doesn't make any sense. Please, if anyone feels like they're unwell or have internal bleeding, I don't know why that would be the first thing that you'd think of. Please go and see a doctor. I would recommend you just go to A and E or something. You don't. I don't understand if you've got. If you think you've yeah. got, I don't know how you know you've got internal bleeding. So I don't understand <laughs> how self referral works in that. Yeah. Case. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same thing with the back pain. Is you don't know what the back pain is. What it'll probably be is they'll face the physio. The physio will say it's maybe not musculoskeletal or something else. And then you'll have to be referred back to your doctor. It just. It just sounds like. They're trying to just pander to certain demographics, but they're not actually listening to doctors and people on the front line about what we really want. The point is, is it's not people foregoing <laughs> being referred to the GP. It's being able to access GP appointments and have enough GPs. And that comes down to support with training. But we've seen like with some of the comments that West, West Streeting has said um, over the past week about the NHS um service working around doctors i feel like the labor are almost targeting them specifically almost because they're seen as an easy target because people naively think that doctors are really well off and have a lot of money but um yeah quite quite odd comments but um i think I, I, it's obviously rubbish because if you're not well you ideally best place to see a doctor i yeah i can't stress that enough please seek medical advice it's not often that you have to actually offer health warnings because of statements issued by the leader of the opposition on personal health. Look, just as a general rule, politicians should not be dispensing no. health advice, which is no. outside of their expertise on national television.
No, they shouldn't. No, no. Oh, you're right. Uh, Max, I just saw all the comments. Just so much support for you and obviously the strike. Um, obviously, you know, you are striking for all of this because you're striking mm -hmm. to save the NHS from the yeah. fate that's been imposed upon it. So it's it's just such an honour to have had you to well, talk so eloquently. Honestly, and it's great to hear a good Northern voice on as well. Always. Oh, always thanks. Oh, yeah. thanks, love. Thanks for having me. Um, bless you, Maxine. We'll speak soon, but thanks again and uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. Lovely stuff. If you're watching, do click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. I'm just going to bring Ellie May. How are you going to Oh, hello, Ellie. Sorry, it's just you were leaning forward, so you're, you've also muted yourself, which is very unprofessional. Okay, Boomer. Come on. In your cut. No, I'm joking. Sorry. It's just, just in the middle of doing some... Stuff on the internet. What were you? What were you doing, Ellie? What were you doing on a? No, nothing dodgy. I was just, I was just. I'm going for noodles with a friend of mine. Oh, I was just booking a table. Lovely. Have you managed to <laughs> book the table? Nice vaccine though, as well. Do you want some more time to book a table? No, you can I've done wait. It now. You can sit here and wait. No, it's fine. I've done it. Oh, wait. Have I done it? Anyway, it, that's fine. I'm on. I'm live on air now. So yeah, do keep us informed. Do keep us informed. Um, hi, by the way. Um, lo lovely dress you're wearing, Ellie. Um, Thanks. it's I actually a top, and I'm actually wearing pajamas on my bottom half. So, yeah, that's fine. I would show you, but that would mean like everyone seeing my crotch. So, <laughs> it's a Sunday, it's a family show. We don't need that. It's very family orientated. We don't, we yeah. can keep talking about your crotch, but I think, I think maybe we'll just change the subject now, Ellie. Um, I think what's interesting is actually, historically speaking. If I'm honest, lots of workers' struggles don't get popular support. So the winter discontent didn't actually have uh, popular support. And actually, the Tories managed to marshal quite a successful anti-union backlash in the 1970s. The miners are interesting because they won the battle for public opinion after they got defeated, but they didn't mm. have support at the time. In fact, actually, support for the miners at one point, I think, fell to 13% during the, during the miners' strike. Um, I, I think it's interesting what's happening at the moment because actually the polling suggests very large support for each i mean there's the nurses get the most support as you'd expect but even amongst train drivers a lot of polls say more support them than not and amongst the working age population there's very large support for the strikes why do, what do you think is going on there why are these disputes do you think and what do you think that makes it harder for the tories to do their thatcher mark II? we'll face down the unions because actually thatcher did have support amongst the, a significant chunk of the population to do that I don't think they have that this time. Well, I think like people have had enough, haven't they? I mean, and I think they see they see people going on strike and they're like, I get, yeah, I get it. I get why, you know. I mean, you go to hospital, you're not seen for 24 hours if you're lucky, you know, in the NHS. You know, a friend of mine's father over Christmas passed away because an ambulance didn't turn up in time. Um, you know, this is happening to people. I mean, I don't know about you, because you, you like me, cycle around. And I don't know about you, but I get nerve, much more nervous cycling now, because I'm like, if I get knocked off my bike, it's curtains. You know what I mean? Because what, what's going to happen? Am I, I'm not going to get an ambulance. Um, and people are really aware of that, you know. Um, I mean, every, like, I feel like it's sort of just part of what we talk about all the time now in this country, that just nothing works. Um, I didn't see my nephew for two months. Um, was supposed to go see him for his birthday and didn't get to see him till two months after his birthday because there was just no trains going to Wales. Mm. Um, you know, it's just stuff like that. People can see that everything is breaking down in this country and and they get that workers have had enough. And, and the gap between sort of... There's never really been a gap between 
the people and the workers, because most of us work, um, workers are essentially just people going to work. But I feel like now, you know, the government has always tried to pit those two groups against each other, customers and workers, patients and workers, commuters and workers, when actually they're the same group. And I think what's happening now is that both of those like that, those groups, well, you know, that, that are the same, but that have been divided, are having the same experience, which is this is not working. It's interesting. Not everybody's skin. I yeah. mean, everything is so expensive. Um, and I should say, I should do myself um, a, a favour, not kick myself for not saying this later, that things getting more expensive is going to continue forever unless we... Um, face the fact that climate change is real and that our crops are going to continue be getting destroyed by global warming. Um, we can change this, but it means facing the fact that climate change is real and also dealing with it by redistributing a lot of wealth. Um, but yeah, things are more expensive. So people also understand people going on strike because no one could afford anything. Ellie, understandably legitimately gets very angry when climate isn't put front and center of things. I think largely because it's an existential threat to human civilization or something. My, a minor yeah. cup. Um, Tad Campbell says, by the way, I always feel like I'm watching a good comedy double act when Ellie Mae is on. But who's the straight man? I think it's probably me. I think I'm the straight. I mean, literally. I'm, I was going to say, I'm not, not, <laughs> not generally accused of being the straight man in these, in any, in any context solidarity with striking workers it's hard to know what to say from across the water he says um you do look like a comedian an internet comedian as well specifically but i've forgotten the name so it's not that interesting uh, ashleen b yeah. yes oh no not ashleen b though yeah i've, I've met a few times Ooh, now yeah I, I get told i look like ashleen b i think it's the dark hair and the blue eyes i get that but i actually meant there's another specific anyway it doesn't matter um ellie so i think that that what you've just said is really interesting because in the 1970s eric hobsbawm who was a um preeminent British Marxist historian. I'm going to name drop again. When he was alive, I did his uh, papers. I used to go, I used to cycle around to his house in Hampstead, uh, do his papers, try and sort them, and then we, we'd have lunch. Anyway, he wrote um, a what, essay. What Owen is trying to say here is he's actually incredibly bourgeois. That's what he's trying to say. <laughs> Very bourgeois. Um, <laughs> he, he, um, he wrote a, letter, he wrote a, a piece uh, in the 1970s called The Forward March of Labour Halted. And he was trying to, I suppose pop what he saw as the triumphalism of the labor movement at the time, which was like rah, 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 we're on the march. And he said actually class solidarity was breaking down. And actually, you got different sections of workers who felt, you know, a strike seemed to be easily portrayed as a strike against the community rather than against the boss. And it was easily portrayed as such. And I think you're, what you're saying, I think, is very spot on, which is when you get what we've had is an unprecedented decline in wages across the piece. The longest squeeze, I, I'm fond of saying this because it's true, since the Napoleonic age, um, and also public services, which are visibly collapsing. So I think what seems to have happened is class solidarity has brought itself back together. Because in the 80s, people, a lot of working class people actually had a lot of animosity towards the miners, or that animosity was easily built but they're not able to do even the train drivers. It's very easy, normal, like people, not train drivers, sorry, it's very important to say this. Train drivers with Aslef are in dispute. The RMT represent rail workers in general, many of whom are on actually pretty low pay. Um, but there is a, they're not managing to whip up the hostility because even though most people aren't in a union anymore, it's only a quarter of the population of the workforce, people are thinking, I'm struggling, actually fair play to them. Someone's doing something about it. I think that's what's changed. Yeah, I agree. And I also think the other thing as well is that not all of us are in a cost of living crisis. Like some of us are having a 
whale of a time like Shell, you know, that's made record profits out of the uh, war in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, like the the CEO of Shell, when he was asked about these insane gas prices that are driving a bull of our energy bills, he said, it is what it is. I mean, that is like guillotine level stuff, like in France. If you'd have said that in France, you know, at one point in history, that would have been remembered as sort of like, um, uh, what's that? Let, let them eat cake. That's like let them eat cake level of of contempt for the people. Can I? So, do, um... oh, I should also just say I'm not advocating violence towards anybody, just to be clear, <laughs> just in case anyone from the right wing is watching this. I just mean that it's the kind of phrase that is remembered, would, would at other periods be remembered in history as a particular kind of contempt for the struggles of ordinary people as you live in luxury. Can I be a Marie Antoinette apologist? Yes, please do, because I will agree with you. Well, I, I mean, I'm not actually going to get into the should she be executed and not debate of the French Revolution. What I'm saying is the, the let them eat cake was actually quite unfair as a thing, because when you got food shortages in France, the boulangeries were ordered to make brioche for people to eat so she was saying if there is food shortages then the that brioche plan needs to get into action and that got then portrayed as let them eat cake i still do support the revolutionary overthrow of the french monarchy before i get accused of of uh, doing down the jacobins um but anyway i just i just think it's, i studied the french revolution and when i found that out i thought it was interesting but you, i get your general point it's a bit of a tangent i just think it's quite interesting um before, I, I'm going to ask you about Labour, even though the difference between me and Ellie, Ellie is Ellie is a professional. She's doing brilliant work with Good Law Projects and has a non-partisan hat on. I uh, don't, so I will rant about Keir Starmer as much as I want, frankly. <laughs> and, I, and I do. But in terms of, I think it's just generally the Tory situation. I think it's interesting that actually Rishi Sunak's polling and as Prime Minister isn't that bad. He doesn't actually, compared to Keir Starmer, they're both pretty mediocre in polling by the way they're not popular either of them but the polling for the tories is actually very very bad like they're still it's like approaching 20 percent labor have a whopping big lead over the conservatives i do you think now basically what's happened is the electorate have just made their minds up and actually the liz truss experiment really cemented that and there isn't actually a way back for the Tories. And I'm thinking they may well try after the May elections to get rid of Rishi Sunak and reinstall Boris Johnson. I think that's entirely plausible. But what do you, what do you think in terms of, do you think it's just at this point, you know, that the Liz Truss experiment just has permanently just destroyed them and that that's, they're doomed, whatever they do now? It's, mm, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously all signs are pointing to a Labour government in, in some ways. Um, and it, of course, to, to us, people, you know, who, um, are not huge fans of the Conservative Party and are also like very politically engaged, it seems mad that they would get back in. But, um, this, the fact that I always come back to in these situations is it has never been the case in a UK election as long as, for as long as these things have been recorded, that, a party has won an election where their leader has been behind in the approval ratings. And that includes like um, Ed Miliband in, in 2015. So Labour, if you remember, you remember Labour were ahead in the polls, but Ed Miliband was way behind David Cameron and then David Cameron won. Because despite the, par the party political system that we have, 
there is still so much emphasis put on the leader in our in our sort of in the coverage of elections. So I do think the fact that the electorate is quite underwhelmed by Keir Starmer, I do think is is a problem is a problem for Labour. And I and while I do, it does seem to me like people are angry and exhausted um, by this government, and I don't think that the government is being very successful at blaming Ukraine or the pandemic for everything. I think people are angry with the government. Um, I don't think it's inconceivable that the government would win another election as they did in 1992, the the Tories, when everybody thought they would lose. I think probably what needs to happen is that people feel some measurable difference in their experience of living in this country between now and then. Um, Whether they will or not, I, I think it's probably doubtful that they will, but... Again, if Boris Johnson comes back in, he'll just throw money at everything. And so maybe they will. You know, um, I don't think it's inconceivable for them to that they would win. And I'm a little bit worried. I'm a bit worried about the I'm a bit worried about the voter ID issue as well, because I feel like that's not really being talked about at all. Um and I'm a bit worried. No, just on that, but that's where people, it's compulsory to have photographic ID in order to turn up. And those who are least likely to have it often poorer, who are less likely to vote for the Tories. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the way they've done it in this country is, is, is crazy. So um, if you have an Oyster card, which for your non-London listeners is um, a travel card in London, uh, there's a, one that you can get as a sort of a young person's Oyster card and one that you can get as a sort of pensioner's Oyster card. And the pensioner's Oyster card is considered valid ID and the young person's Oyster card isn't. That just seems to me like blatant um, meddling in elections. Because young people don't vote for the Conservatives overwhelmingly and old people do. So, yeah, you can see what they've done. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So so I'm a bit concerned that, like, nothing's being said about that. I also... um, I'm also like, just, I kind of, maybe this is a rose-tinted view of the US, but I felt in 2020, there was this real feeling amongst people in the progressives, the broad progressive spectrum in the US that like, Joe Biden was not really what they wanted. He was not Mm. the man for the moment, but they knew that it was sort of an existential necessity for the country to get um, Trump out. So they sort of just did it. They swallowed their doubts uh, some you know many of which were like very valid about joe biden you know he was accused of sexual assault by somebody um i should say he denies that um but you yeah, know that's sued by joe biden what a low i point. know but you know um like you know so he so you know there was legitimate reasons not to to vote for him but people did it because they recognized that that trump was just you could not they could not have trump in power and I'm a bit worried that this. I don't feel that the same thing is happening here. I don't yeah. like because I do personally like you know, and I say like yes, I'm non-partisan, but I think it's okay for me to say I do personally think that this government is like a bit of an existential threat to the gov- to the country, mm-hmm. and I don't. And I'm I'm sort of alarmed that like that. I don't know that the priorities doesn't seem to be getting them out as much mm-hmm. as. It, has, it was in the US and also in Australia with the Liberals, you know. Um, 
Oliver Kant says, just to keep cheering everyone up with comments, anyone, anyone else feel like they're in a second Bronze Age collapse as time goes on? The comparison keeps feeling more real the more I think about it. Lovely. Uh, fair <laughs> enough, though. David, Bra let's talk about Labour. David Browater says uh, the Tories aren't going to be in power forever and it's likely Labour will be in power at some point. So how do you think Keir's Labour Party would handle these strikes? Oh, should I answer that? Well, they've, yeah, said, um, they've said that they will, will repeal the stupid anti-strike law. So that's why. As you know from Keir Starmer, a pledge is a pledge. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Um, I think probably they will, though, just because I think that that's like the sort of thing, like, I'm surprised they would see that as a vote winner. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because actually the polling um, isn't on their site exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's like slightly left wing, so I kind of feel like that they... If, if they're saying it now, they probably will do it because um, they generally don't seem to be like, like to say left wing things in, in public. Um, and I think, I think they would like, I think basically they'd get around the negotiating table. I'm not necessarily sure that it would end the way that the unions would like it to, but I don't think you'd have this kind of standoff at the moment. And, you know, I have to say like, Every single party that we have in this country at the moment that isn't the Conservatives is better than, than the Conservatives. Like, I'm not saying that they're all great, but they're all better for the than the Conservatives. And I think a really good example of that is the Cumbria coal mine, which is an absolute catastrophe. Um, it's a catastrophe for Britain's climate targets. Um, it will create, like, floods that will destroy people's homes. It will lock the local population into jobs that will disappear pretty quickly it's just a catastrophe on every single level I, i'll be surprised if it ever gets built but they're kind of ramming that through and as far as i'm aware every other single party has said that they wouldn't build that um and labor has said that they would stop uh new oil and gas licenses mm -hmm. so you know they're not like the other parties don't have they're not like they've all got their own problems. They've got they could sit here criticizing all of them all day, but they are better than what we currently have. And that does matter. I think that's important. Yeah, I guess the issue is, though, um, what does it say about a democracy where you end up where I mean, the problem we've got is, as you say, we've got these huge social, economic and environmental crises happening and the there is an obvious need not in the abstract but just in a meaningful practical way to have transformative policies that deal with those interlinking crises and the fact we no longer have a political party with the ambition to do so is something which isn't just bad from a left-wing perspective where we're like well we're lefties we're going to moan about it it, it just means that these crises oh maybe they won't get as worse as much and i agree with them that you know when we talk about the gap between labor and the conservatives being too small but millions of people live in that gap i get all that but it still means basically you, you end up with whoever you vote for privatization the nhs uh you still end up with you'll end up with authoritarian laws they've made that clear in terms of clamp, clamping down on, on the climate protesters for example uh you won't get the public spending you need because they've made it clear they're not going to do ambitious public spending. Young people are still going to be saddled with debt for going to university. Do you see what I mean? You end up basically with things being bad, just not quite as bad. That's bleak. Yeah, I think I think one of the worst things to come out of this period that we're living in at the moment, and I see it all the time, 
especially speaking to people in my life who are not into politics and also whenever I've done public attitudes research, which I haven't done for like a few months, but um, is like people just do not believe that change is possible. And actually like what, what governments, not just here, but around the world are telling us very clearly right now that they aren't going to do anything unless we do. Like we actually have to do something about this as ordinary people. We have to come together and use our collective power. I have actually come out of like when I was in my mid twenties to like to my early thirties, like or just like thirty. I um I did like a lot of activism. Like I was like active like every week. You know, I was going to meetings and things like at least once a week, sometimes more. And I was very very active. And I sort of stopped that when I got to my thirties. partly just because I started working in politics. So it sort of felt like my job was activism. But I've like picked that up again now. In fact, when I get off this Zoom, I'm going to go onto another Zoom talking with some people in my local community around organising around climate change. Right. Because right. actually, like, we have to do something. Like, we have to. And the people watching this, I would say, if you're, if you're giving up your Sunday to watch Owen Jones on YouTube, I would imagine you're quite politically engaged. Oh, I thought, you're gonna, I thought you were going to, like, insult everyone. I was like, all right. no. I would imagine that the people watching this are politically engaged already. And so now is is the time. And I will tell you this as someone that's got back into it. You do feel a bit like, oh, this doesn't feel adequate. This feels a bit small. But then once you get into the swing of like activism again, or if it's your first time, activism at all, then you start meeting people um new people you develop a little community around activism and actually just being around a group of people who are sick of things being the way they are and want them to change is actually really nice and and then you make things happen and you feel like you are making a difference and we're all like little drops of water coming together to make a big wave that can change things and we really really need you we need you to get up and get active. And that's the only thing that is going to make a difference. And I know how terrifying that is, but it is also true. I'm just going to come up just before, just quickly with a clip from Keir Starmer uh, from Laura Cunningham's show. But just again, Tad Campbell just points out, we have voter ID in Ireland, but you can bring in one piece of photo ID or two recent paper bills with your name and address in comparison. And that's interesting. In just the words be- of David Brentner, shouldn't have to. I know I agree. Shouldn't have to. Shouldn't have to. I agree with you. And the point about voter fraud is this is it's a it's um, a solution in search of a problem because the evidence for voter fraud in Britain is very, very, very low indeed. And you'll end up with a far greater evil of people being deterred from voting. But the Tories don't care because the people deterred won't be voting Tory a lot of them. Well, that's why they're doing it, isn't it? To deter people who would vote Labour from voting. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what they do in in America. It's called, of course, as you know, and I'm sure everyone knows, voter suppression. Okay, let's just put on this. Uh, here we go. This is Keir Starmer. Hello. Oh, no, sorry, I won't do an impression of him. <laughs> Junking promises that you made to your party. Now, when you ran as leader, you said you would end outsourcing yeah. in the NHS. That's out. You said that you would abolish the welfare payment, universal credit. That's out. And one of our viewers, Edmund, wants to know, he says, if Keir Starmer has broken all of his pledges to the Labour Party, how can the country expect to trust a word he says? Well, what how s- can people trust you when you have, you know, explicitly junked promises you made? Well, when I was running for leader, I made pledges which reflected my values. Um, since then, we're now, what, three years on, 
a lot has changed, as you said at the head of the programme. We've been through COVID. We are still going through uh, an awful conflict in Ukraine, and the Tory government has done huge damage to our economy. What's that and got to do with you ditching a promise to end outsourcing in the NHS? Well, so far as the NHS is concerned, what we've said in the last week or two is we would make more use mm -hmm. of the private sector to clear... Right, just on this, just just want to quick because I'm going to play a little, a very small little clip as well, just to underline the point here. So we rightly, there's a consensus from left to liberals that the Tories are liars, that Boris Johnson lies as easy as he breathes, and people will talk and decry the undermining of British democracy because of dishonesty and a lack of integrity on the part of politicians. I'm afraid a lot of those same liberals become very quiet and actually silent about Keir Starmer's serial dishonesty. People are talking about when he says the circumstances have changed. Firstly, this is just a get out of jail card for any politician to promise whatever they want and then discard those promises later on. That's what the Tories did with national insurance. They said in the election they wouldn't increase national insurance. Then they said circumstances have changed. Labour said that that was not acceptable. They made a promise regardless of circumstances and then they went back on it. And the, the same applies... When Keir Starmer went into that leadership election saying abolishing tuition fees, hiking taxes on the rich, nationalisation of utilities, the idea, and I'm going to just show a clip to underline this point, and then I just want to hear your response, Ellie. The idea this was um, actually genuine, authentic promises, which he meant to keep, but then the circumstances just blew it away, which I'm sure he's devastated about, isn't true. He made promises he didn't want to keep because he knew the only way to win the Labour leadership was via a left-wing membership, which wouldn't have accepted him throwing over these policies and talking about increasing the private sector, for example, in the National Health Service. That's why he made this promise. And just to underline this point, this is a clip from Margaret Hodge from during the leadership election. This is a clip from before Keir Starmer became leader. He's triangulating like mad. Somebody said to me, I don't mind what he does as long as he wins, beats Rebecca Long-Bailey. And I thought, you know, Tony never did that. Tony was completely straight, completely honest. You know, it's a different way of doing your politics. So is Keir lying to get the job and then will he then change? That's what this person was saying to me as a way of promoting Keir. I mean, that's sort of, I know. So that's sort of in a way, you then think, oh. I mean, Jesus Christ. I love that. The only thing there is like, Tony Blair was totally honest. Okay, fine. But apart from that, um, oh, sorry, the lighting's reflecting me from my window, so I look a bit odd there. Um, yeah, I mean, he lied to become leader. He didn't mean those promises. And he thought to himself, his team thought, we can get away with it because the people on the receiving end of our dishonesty are Labour members and people on the left. And it is seen as good politics to defeat the left by any means possible. The left are not legitimate political actors, and therefore we can be as dishonest as we want because we'll get away with it. What do you think? I mean, I think that is definitely what they were thinking and it is what's happened. Um, I think what I would say about what Margaret Hodge said, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm like lol about the idea that Tony Blair was completely honest. I don't think anybody thinks that. But um, but I do think that Tony Blair in the, in the 90s when he was running for leader, he did make an argument to the, to the Labour selectorate um, that he won. And then so they voted for him. And then he made an argument to the country and he won that. And then so then he won the election. He didn't pretend to be left wing when he was running for leader. And in fact, he actually um, said some stuff that was kind of not cool. Like um, 
he he kind of suggested at one point during a TV into a radio interview that uh, single mothers were immoral. You know, when he was running for leader, because that because you know Philip Gould, his um, sort of guru, uh, was very very interested in targeting sort of socially conservative um, upper working class, lower middle class people who he viewed as aspirationals, and then that was so that was part of that strategy. So he didn't, you know, like Tony Blair, whatever you think of him, and I'm sure that, you know, I'm I'm sure that your listeners, I mean, sorry, and and viewers, depending on which medium you're consuming this, um, have got like pretty damning opinions of him. And I, w- I became politically active the first time during the uh, Iraq war. Um, he, but he was a talented politician. He he was able to persuade people, and he did have a vision. Like he he wrote a lot. Of, you know, he wrote books about what he thought politics should look like. I mean, it was like quite a superficial vision, but it was a, a vision. And and you know, like Peter Mandelson wrote the Blair Revolution, which was essentially like the kind of foundational text of Blairism. And then you had Anthony Giddens, who was the you know, the intellectual, the academic backbone of Blairism, they created the third way and it was a political philosophy. And that, like Keir Starmer doesn't have any of that. He he just, he basically said a load of stuff that he thought that the electorate wanted to hear. Because I think at the time, the Labour membership, they, they wanted what Jeremy Corbyn had offered in terms of policy, but they wanted it to be delivered by a guy who looks like he'll play the prime minister in a BBC crime drama, you know, and that's what Keir Starmer offered them. Mm. Um, and and that then they voted for it. But he doesn't he doesn't seem to have a, a coherent political philosophy. He seemed to he sort of seemed to and is still apparently saying what he thinks he needs to say in order to win. And I think, and and that's really worrying if you want, if you, someone that wants Labour to win the next election, because um, it's all very shallow and you can't trust it. Um, Well, I mean, I think like the electorate will probably feel like they can't trust him because people, you know, like the, the public. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Obviously, the public, like making a sweeping statement here, often believe things that aren't true, but they're not stupid. And they can see through politicians that don't mean what they say. And they do prize authenticity Hmm. above a lot of other stuff. So I think that's quite dangerous, really, for him. Um, I I think he's also given the right, a a useful stick to beat him with, because... um, 
they, you know, they're being accused of being liars and untrustworthy all the time, the Tories. But they can say, well, so is he. And they can like drag him down with them. And when you create a political environment where people hate politics and are mistrustful, it's usually the most reactionary right wingers that do well out of that. Mm -hmm. And the Tories have demonstrated in the last few years that they're very willing to be those reactionary right wingers. So this is a danger for him. I know that like his he him and his people don't take it seriously because they just think it's the left having a whine. Which which it is a bit, but like um, I do think there is a political problem there that like might come back to haunt him. But he wouldn't listen to me either, so you know. Great stuff, Ellie. Just to wrap up, because we're going to bring in our next brilliant guest. But David Bowater says, "What happens to British politics if Keir wins and is as dishonest as he was during the Labour leadership election? Lying Labour and disastrous Tories. Absolutely, very good point." And Rachel Rees says, "Not Rachel Rees, <laughs> Rachel Rees." <laughs> I will talk, I'm about to talk, this is great, it's a great segue. Keir's knowledge on trans people seems to have been obtained from bloke down the pub not her, uh, who heard it on Twitter. He needs to take a stand against his manufactured culture war. A very good segue for our next guest. Um, Ellie, as ever, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're a superstar. Go and enjoy your uh, just Zoom organising and fighting to change things. Yeah, and, thank um, you, I will do. Thank we'll you. Hang out. We'll hang out soon. Lots of love. Bye. Of love. Bye. Bye. Lovely stuff. If you're watching live, or you're not watching live actually doesn't matter if you're watching on youtube just click like and leave a comment we like engagement i do read through all the comments including the ones which have been very rude about me as well sometimes i can take it i'm tougher than i look low bar let's bring in now the brilliant beth douglas hello oh. how are you doing lovely Thank to you see you no what an honor what an honor to have you uh, so you're based up are you in edinburgh oh my god i'm not i'm in i'm in glasgow which means oh. every time something like this happens i, I need to travel through but it's really for good causes <laughs> Great. Well, it's really, really honoured to, to have you. It's interesting that last... I will use, actually, Keir Starmer's comments on the show, Laura Connorsberg show, as a hook. Not because I want to go on about Keir Starmer again, quite bored of talking about him, to be honest with you, but just actually because it sets up some of the myths about the gender recognition reform that took place in Scotland. So let's just hear from Keir Starmer. This morning, you don't support the law that has been introduced in Scotland? Well, we put down amendments which unfortunately didn't carry a but, relationship But your MSPs voted for it, Kirsten. I'm asking you really straightforwardly, yes. the law's been changed in Scotland. There's a separate conversation about whether or not the UK yeah, government might Yeah, my answer, Laura, is it. I have concerns about the provision in Scotland, in particular uh, the age reduction mm -hmm. to 16, in particular um, the rejection of our amendment in relation to the Equalities Act. So in but principle, across the whole of the area, I think we should modernise the law and I think we need a respectful debate that recognises um, you know, the different arguments that are being made. At the moment, this is just treated as a political football from start to finish. And I don't think that actually advances the cause of anyone, frankly. And, and we're, and that, but, but that's why also I think people want to know really clearly what your position is, rather than having... Modernise the legislation to take out the indignities. But do you therefore not back this happening at 16? It sounds to me that's what you, what you are saying. You would not agree that you are old enough at the age of 16. No, I don't, I don't think you are. You don't think you are at 16. OK, that's clear. Would you, if you were Prime Minister, therefore... What do you think about that, Beth? So this is obviously yeah. a similar law has been passed, I should say, in Germany, which is actually, I think, more progressive than the one passed in Scotland, actually. Just on that, he's playing to a particular gallery that was going to cheer him on. Mm, definitely. So definitely. just to talk us through that that point about age. Yeah, well, really, he's like, in my perspective, he's, he's missing an open 
goal. Um, Keir Starmer knows, he's a clever boy, right? Um, he, he knows that in Scotland, you are legally an adult when you are 16. In Scotland, we have the right to vote at 16. You can get married at 16. You can go on um, and, and fight for your country and, 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 and begin that process at 16. So it, it's really bizarre to, to see and hear here come, come out of this. It's not totally surprising though because he is always a politician that wants to be firmly in the middle of the aisle but really the Labour Party is supposed to be the party of devolution. It's the party of the Equality Act, it's the party of the, the original gender recognition reform and, and they were forced to implement that because we used to be a country that um, ordered trans people in order if you wanted to be legally recognised, you had to be sterilised. So I think it's really sad to see Keir sort of ignore all that, um, ignore his party's history, and really just sort of go down that sort of line of trying to keep this manufactured culture war alive, when what he really should be doing is he should be taking the Tories on task with their failures, rather than getting wrapped up in, in this nonsense. We've had seven years of incredibly intense debate, um, and, and he, he seems to not want to be with us at the moment and that's really really sad to see with um i think the myths involved with this what people think basically they don't understand how transition works yeah. and i think particularly with gender affirming surgery i think people what people don't understand they think basically at the age of 16 and then suddenly people have gen they have gender affirming surgery and all so just talk us through that because that's what goes to people's heads that's yeah. what they tapping into so this this bill has has like almost nothing to do with with um, the medicalized. It actually demedicalizes the current process uh, at the moment. And and right now, where I live in the west of Scotland, if you want um, gender affirming therapy as a trans person, you have to wait more than five years to get that. If you're a cis person, you want gender affirming um, healthcare, you could just go to your GP and 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 just and just get it really almost on the same day in some in some occasions so you know a lot of people are like oh but we're fast tracking youth to be on this irreversible pathway but um if you if you are legally an adult at 16 in scotland then you should you should have all the rights as an adult not just some and not just halfway and that's what i really think Kira is missing out here he should be really in favor of of you know not just this at 16 but votes at 16 and a hell of a lot more um, rather than having this legally patchy mess uh, between Scotland and England about who is an adult and, and what age are they an adult at. Just in terms of talking about the Tories, the, Tor the Tory government is talking about blocking yeah. this law, um, which obviously for everyone who's not aware, it was part of the agreement between the SNP and the Greens. The SNP didn't win a majority, so they had to strike a agreement with the Greens. And this was part of it. So there is a, that's how parliamentary democracy works. You have a majority, well, in fact, most Labour S MSPs by a big margin also voted for this. So you had a big margin of SNP, Green um, and Labour. Obviously, most Tory MSPs didn't. There were, I think, two rebels. Yep. What do you think about the, what the Tories are talking about? And with, um, why have I forgotten her name? Uh, Ke Kemi Badenoch, sorry, the Equalities Minister, yeah. uh, and the rhetoric coming from her, as well as Rishi Sunak. Yeah, so there's, it's really interesting because there seems to be two different plans from, from the UK Conservatives. The first plan is to sort of try and introduce some sort of, of, of section order to prevent this from getting royal assent. So maybe that is, is section 33, or maybe it's section 35, like they originally said. Um, the other plan 
which you referenced there, is just to stop recognising Scottish certificates. So you might have seen them uh, make, make an announcement that they were going to review all of the countries that have got self-ID and, and we basically recognise their certificates. Now, I think they've very quickly learned that that's a bad idea because in order to ignore Scotland and your certificates, you have to treat Scotland like it's an overseas territory or country, which obviously has implications and, and the Tories don't want to do that. So alongside just trans people, there's also devolution at yeah. stake here and just the autonomy of what devolved authorities can and can't do. Um, so it's really interesting. Originally, it seemed like they were going to slide back and just do the Scottish, ignore Scottish um, certificates. But now it does seem like they're back and that they genuinely do want to put in a section order of, of some kind. If they do go ahead with the section 35 order, that'll be unprecedented. It's never happened before. It will be a constitutional crisis. Uh, uh, but most of all, they need to hurry up because they've only got four days left. Absolutely. Just a couple of other issues. One of them, I, I think a lot of people who aren't trans, for those who aren't aware of the terminology, that means being that's cis, in the same way we talk about people who are straight rather than gay or bi. Um, there's been a ferocious moral panic about trans people in the last few years, which is frighteningly similar to that which gay and bisexual people suffered in the 80s and 90s. I'm not saying it's all great now for gay and bi people, but obviously things were a lot worse. You had a moral panic which portrayed gay people and bi people as sexual predators, threats to children, brainwashers of children, defiers of the rules of biology, a fetish, defined by mental illness. The World Health Organization only took homosexuality off its list of mental illnesses in 1991. Yeah. I mean, what's it... How... When trans people talk to them, talk to each other and their allies about the plight that they're facing, what's it like at the moment? Because in, in Scotland, you've got at least a supportive government. Mm. You do have a big anti-trans movement in Scotland, which is very vociferous. How does that leave trans people feeling? It, it leaves you feeling uh, in order. It, it, it impacts how safe you feel going out. It impacts um, just your ability to exist in a day-to-day -day life. Um, all of the shame that they use is to try and push us back into the closet. It's the same story that's been that's been going on, um, you know, er, ever since like, uh, you know, the seventies, eighties, leading up to HIV crisis and beyond. It's the exact same story again and again and again. And this is just the the, the latest episode in a, a really long running season that needs to be cancelled at some point. Um, on the flip side as well, Britain has has always been. A little bit weird with gender as an empire and um, we messed up <laughs> a lot of the globe and, and we enforced very our own gender ideology onto them and we erased cultures and, and, and ways of life and now it seems like there's a weird flip side because now it almost feels like gender is destroying the UK almost because we are in a scenario where politicians either need to decide whether they respect devolution or do they respect keeping this culture war alive? Um, because if you keep that culture war alive, it means you don't need to be accountable for your failures in government. It's as simple as that, really. And that is the same story that we've seen, you know, way back with the moral panic against gay and bisexual men, leading up to today uh, with the, moral, the current moral panic against trans people. But the real big reason why they don't want this to pass is because like the many countries that have introduced self-ID before us, 
they'll show that all of their so-called gender critical concerns are misplaced and they're lacking of any evidence. And if Scotland has that evidence, and if Scotland can clearly show that, then it becomes more likely to introduce self-ID in the rest of the UK. And I should say the Welsh government have said that they're looking at introducing their own. But also Kezia Dugdale, the former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, wrote an excellent piece for The Times in Scotland, which made the point very eloquently, as you've just done as well, which is, I think it's now about 13 countries have passed laws, that's excluding US states, um, along these lines with a combined population of about 350 million people. And there have been no cases whatsoever of the sorts that those fear-mongering about the Scottish because a lot of people don't seem to understand what the law means. They think, for example, it, they, they're railing against things which already exist under the Equality Act, for example, like trans women using women's toilets, which is Absolutely. what trans women have been doing for a very long time. By the way, do, I, I do have a theory you're just talking about in terms of the cultural war. One of my theories is transphobia has partly ruined the Tories because, okay, this is a bit convoluted, but listen, so I want to hear what you think. Because... Um, there had to be two candidates to put to the Tory membership, um, as we remember when Boris Johnson resigned. And the only candidate who could have stopped Liz Truss getting into the final two was Penny Mordaunt. Mm-hmm. But Penny Mordaunt was monstered because she was allegedly too sympathetic to towards trans people. And that destroyed her leadership campaign, which enabled mm-hmm. Liz Truss to get into the final two and then detonate the British economy and destroy because Anyway, but it is just, it's just interesting. Just finally, I'm sorry. Though, I'm sorry we did that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, dev- I'm devastated. Um, but um, look, Beth, thanks so much for joining us and just showing again that you know it's so important that allies step up and Thank listen you. to trans people and trans voices um it's great what's happened in scotland and hopefully what will happen in wales um but this is a vicious moral panic with terrible human consequences and um as ever my love and solidarity and i know the love and solidarity and looking through the, the comments so much love and admiration so oh, thank you thank you very che- much cheers beth nice um, one thank you well done in creating a, such a fantastic platform and thanks for having me on lots of love really appreciate it great t-shirt see you in a bit Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lovely stuff. What an honour to have Beth. So brilliantly put as well as ever. If you're watching uh, live or not live, do click uh, like, subscribe. Make sure you subscribe. We obviously want you to subscribe. Let's bring on now the brilliant Joan Salter. What an honour to have you. Hello. How you doing? Hi. Got yeah. you there. So, yeah. right. What I'm going to do, Joan, is I'm going to show the clip because some people, are, I mean, millions of people have seen this clip. Millions of people Apparently now. Apparently, they're up to 20 million. I don't know where all these people live. Well, you yeah. are a viral sensation. That's, that's, the, I, don't ma- I don't make the rules, I'm afraid. Um, so, Joan Salter is a Holocaust survivor, a child Holocaust survivor, and she confronted, I'm afraid to say, the woman who is our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. Let's just hear what Joan said. I am a child survivor of the Holocaust. This is a bit annoying because we're, normally what we're going to have to be, have to listen, even though me and Joan are still on the screen, because normally what happens is we hide both the people, but that hasn't happened. So just bear with us, everyone. I am a child survivor of the Holocaust. In 1943, I was forced to flee my birth place in Belgium, thanks to, of course, war-torn Europe and dangerous seas until I finally was able in 1947. Now, when I hear you using words against refugees like swarms and an aversion, I am reminded of the language used to dehumanize and justify the murder of my family and millions of others. Why do you find the need to use that kind of language? 
demonstrate the scale of the problem. But we mustn't shy away from saying there is a problem. I will not uh, shy away from saying we have a problem with people exploiting that generosity, breaking our rules and undermining our system. Do you know, let's just talk through your reaction to Suella Braverman's response. First of all, can I clarify? I am an educator. I do not see myself as a political activist. I have friends on all sides of the political divide. But I do feel very strongly about this uh, language of hate to create divisions between people and where it can lead to. And that was what I said to. I was very careful in my question and that was what it was. And actually I did start by congratulating her. She'd given an hour's talk outlining her role and her attitudes. And it might not be my attitudes, but she was a very clear, good speaker, and I congratulated her on that. However, I was really amazed that she still stood up and said, I will not apologize for these words because I made clear the relevance of those words and where it can lead to because all genocides do not start on the killing fields or the camps. They start with words to divide people. And that is exactly what I felt she was doing. So uh, interesting enough, uh, the Home Office contacted Freedom From uh, Torture and demanded they take down the video because they said it was edited. Yes, it was edited because she didn't reply to my question immediately because obviously the clogs went on in her head. How was she going to reply? And she took other questions in between which she was able to uh, go on to her feelings about immigration. And then she finished with quite a long answer. Now, they had only replied her first reply that she refuses to um, apologize. However, after the Home Office put pressure on FFT and they had FFT had to get their lawyers involved, they put the whole answer on, which quite honestly shot the woman in the foot because it really showed her attitudes. And as far as I'm concerned, the Home Office is supposed to be neutral. They are not supposed to be giving uh, a face for the individual because she is speaking as a conservative. And I'll be quite honest, I'm quite happy now to be a political activist. It is, it is terrifying. Do they not realize we are a democracy? Mm. That 
I had registered my name. It was up to them to check. If they had Googled me, they would have heard my speaking. I am not a member of any political party. I did not speak as a political activist. I spoke about the dangers of using language. And thank you for allowing me to make that comment. Because, well, yeah. Well, and, and, and very eloquently put, as you were so eloquent in that clip as well. I mean, just in terms of just to expand on the really important points that you made when you challenged her, because lots of people, obviously, when we think of the Holocaust, we think of just unparalleled evil in that we had the industrialised, uh, mm. systematic murder of the mm. European Jewish population, two thirds, of course, of the Jewish population yeah. in Europe killed in a very short space of time. Yeah. Um, and I think what, People then think, well, th you know, this is like it, it's so exceptional, if you like. Mm. And obviously, and, and obviously, we've had other genocides, in, often in different forms, because it was just so industrialized the way it was done in mm. the, the show. Mm. But I suppose the, the point you're talking about is de the, that the the lessons from history, because what is the point of studying mm. unless we learn the lessons from it, is that whilst dehumanization doesn't necessarily lead to such horror, it is the precondition of such absolutely. Absolutely, because Germany was a very, very civilized country where Jews had lived for centuries without any restraints on their uh, jobs or anything, which was the case, for instance, in, in the Tsarist Russia. The Jews weren't allowed to do anything. But in Germany, they had lived side and side, and actually they were a very integrated community. The majority of the German Jews saw themselves as Germans. And maybe, you know, maybe they had a Jewish religion or Jewish, you know, they were not anti-Germany in any way. And it was a complete, you know, what the the Nazis did was, I mean, there was high inflation, so they had to find someone to blame for it because it couldn't be their fault. And that is when the restrictions and the dehumanization of the Jews started. And within two years, it led to factories of death. So for home office to tell us that we mustn't argue the case against a home secretary mm. using that kind of language and being so proud of it i'm sorry uh i'm willing to stand up so i mean as well i mean we've got obviously suella bravman and the conservatives but i mean it goes much wider than that, does it? Because much of the British media talk about migrants and refugees in very dehumanising ways. I'm going to give you just, I'm going to read, this seems quite an, ex, might maybe think quite an extreme example, but it was published in the Sun newspaper, which is one of the two biggest newspapers, I'm afraid to say, in the country along with the Daily okay. Mail. It's read by millions of people. This was written by the then columnist, Katie Hopkins. She since, to be fair, no longer has a mainstream platform, but she was a Sun columnist. And she, you may remember this yourself, but it, and others may remember this, but I'm going to read it out anyway. No, I've seen your uh, blog on it. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just... not read the Sun or the no, Daily of course. 
I'm not I'm not a prolific reader, but I do have to read it sometimes as part of my job, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll just read it so people either watching or listening to this can just just as an example. I don't want to put put to you mm-hmm. dehumanization mm-hmm. in the media. So mm-hmm. she says. Uh, rescue boats, I'd use gunships to stop migrants. What we need are gunships sending these boats back to their own country. You want to make a better life yourself, then you had better get creative in Northern Africa. No, I don't care. Show me pictures of coffins. Show me bodies floating in water. Yeah, Violins and show me skinny yeah. people looking sad. I still don't care. Because the next minute you'll show me pictures of uh, young men at Calais spreading like norovirus on a, cru- a, cru- on a cruise ship. And she calls them cockroaches. She compares them to cockroaches. That's what the Nazis used. Cockroaches, yeah. I mean, in terms of when you see these headlines, I mean, we can just, you know, things like migrants take all new jobs in Britain. That was a front page. Britain's 40% surge in ethnic numbers. There's another one. One in five Muslim sympathy for jihadis. The Sun put that on the front page, then had to issue a correction several months later. But the damage is done, isn't it? The correction, I think, was on page 22. Oh, we're very sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was she not censored? Well, not for that. In, in the end, she ended up losing her platform oh. because she uh, okay. she was she was on LBC and she called for a final solution for Muslims, uh, which oh is I get ma- makes the point for you. She denied, oh, yeah. I should say, that this was a call for genocide or repeti- repetition of the Holocaust, but nonetheless lost her job for talking about a final solution. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at this, don't you? You just think, where does this lead when you get so much dehumanization um, and how how widespread it is. It's not only that, it's just plain bloody stupid. You're going to get a reaction. You're going to get a reaction. If if people feel they're threatened, they're going to act against the country. And then it, it becomes a vicious circle. Uh, you know, it, that language is completely unacceptable she should be in jail for using it it is hate crime and i'm appalled that that nothing was done really well in the end i mean as i say she did end up losing uh, her job eventually but the point is is that these are you know the point i make is there's a general kind of attempt to make people feel that the problems in their lives which are very real yeah, like down. an nhs that isn't resourced properly yeah, their yeah. wages that kind That's of thing right. that you shouldn't blame it's politicians all these people that are using these resources that's the only reason that the nhs is falling apart not that if we didn't have foreign people staffing the nhs we wouldn't have anything as bad as it is at the moment it is depending on foreign workers to keep it going and that's the truth of it yeah it was said after the holocaust never again as someone as a holocaust survivor and whose family members were killed in the holocaust do you think that never again is taken seriously well actually uh, i have said how did never again turn into again and again and again. And it's all very well to assume that these things happen in uncivilized parts of the world and there's nothing we can do, but we bloody well got to stand up to it. We really do. I mean, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was a very much a pacifist and, you know, quite left wing. But as I've grown up, I mean, when this business in Ukraine started, I thought, this is a tyrant. 
this is another Stalin. And if we don't stand up to him, God knows. So, yeah, you know, language is important. And, you know, if you're going to be timid, yeah, that's, yeah. Just finally, as, you know, as someone who, whose life was so profoundly touched by the this just an, a, a horror which I think for most people just seems completely unimaginable. What do you urge people to do when they in, in terms of pushing back at this sort of dehumanization? Well uh you've got to react. You cannot shrug your shoulders and say, oh well, you know, it's someone else, it's somewhere else. Because in the end it will radicalize the groups that are being targeted because, you know, you can't expect any group of human beings to stand there and listen to these remarks without hate turning within themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you get a cycle of hate and fear. And uh, so people, and at the moment, the Twitter, I've actually had to cover my screen because the Twitter, I believe it's reached over 20 million, wow. uh, whatever it's called. I'm not views, the greatest views, views. And I think the uh, Suella Braverman has hit herself in the foot and she's probably done the Labour Party a great favour. I mean, just I'm not, being, I'm not being partisan, but she's an idiot. <laughs> That's one of the more polite descriptions I could think of to think as well, rather. But just, just, I mean, just, just very finally on that. I mean, do you think hopefully that the impact your video has had, your contribution has had, has actually forced the government? Because it's rare, let's be honest. Because so much of the media is complicit, you don't get yeah. this rhetoric yeah. stood up to very often. So you've actually stood up to them in a way that very few people have. Labour aren't doing it either. I think we can say that in a non-partisan way. So you've kind of filled a vacuum, haven't you? Because that is, that's the point. It's, 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 it's you taking a stand that others haven't taken as loudly as they should be. Well, others have, but let's say the right person at the right time. Eh? Uh, it got picked up. And it caused, it was as much the home office reaction. Mm. If they'd left it alone, you know, all right, maybe a few hundred people would have reacted. Actually, I do have to tell you, there was one uh, keyboard warrior who didn't join in the condemnation, but uh, <laughs> wrote that I'm just an old bag uh, seeking my 15 minutes of fame. Well, you know, it wasn't me, Gov. It was you lot that caused this. Uh, I believe they've blamed me for being a propagandist. I just, you can read my words. I did not condemn any party. I did not get into the immigration issue. I just called her out for her language. And that's what I did. And if that's propaganda, I think the Home Office, who should not be the spokesperson for the Home Secretary or mm -hmm. any politician, mm 
They are supposed to be neutral. And they, well, I'm sure that she has given them hell and they've done it to keep her quiet. But, you know, it's a disgrace. And I hope Rishi Sumac realizes that perhaps she is not the person that should be the Home Secretary because she's created a hell of a lot of hate for them. And sorry if I'm being political. No, you're, you're, I mean, everything is political and this certainly is. Uh, just, I just want to finish up just by reading some of the comments people are making. David Barata says, thank you for speaking up, Joan, you're great. People saying, Joan for PM. Uh, more of that from wonderful people like Joan, please. The lady is as sharp as a scalpel. We have your back, Joan. Uh, total respect to Joan Salter, MBE, inspirational. Uh, much love and strength to Joan. I utterly love Joan. Tell it like it is, straight to the point. Uh, yeah, as you can see, just lots and lots and lots of love for you there. Um, so yeah, I, and someone says, I'm not being partisan, but she's an idiot. Made my day. Well said. Uh, Joan, it's been such an honor to have you. You've been an absolute superstar. You are a superstar. You, you've literally been watched by millions of people. And right at this second, thousands of people are watching that video over and over again for the first time. Thank you for your courage, your leadership, for telling it like it is. Uh, and it's been such an honor to have you. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone. Yeah. And also people yeah. look up Freedom From Torture. Uh, they yeah. released the video. Yeah. They're obviously the almost after them. Yeah. And they're brilliant. Do support Freedom From Torture and they're brilliant. Yeah. And right. I, I have worked with them and I've spoken to their uh, survivors. And I am aware that they are put in limbo for years until a decision is made. Really? And in the end, once they are processed, 77% of them are accepted as qualifying yeah. as refugees. Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. And, and th those facts are missing from this discussion often, so yeah, I'm glad you raised absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. Joan, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and uh, thanks for the inspira in, being in, inspiring and, and, and eloquent. Take care. Take care of it. Thank you very much. Brilliant stuff. Oh, sorry, cut her off there. So it's brilliant stuff from Joan, honestly. I really could listen to her all day. And I saw just the comments, people absolutely full of love and admiration for someone who really did tell it like it is, spoke from the heart and spoke the truth. That's at the end of the day. That's what that was. It was the truth. And I think just, you know, throughout history, politicians have risen to power by using demagogic, inflammatory language about people who frankly often don't have a voice, who are marginalized and vulnerable, and for whom it's easy to direct people's legitimate anger and grievances at, rather than the people in charge. We can see, for example, the NHS, as Joan points out, propped up by foreign-born uh, workers, without whom the whole system would completely collapse um, overnight, whether it be, you know, the failure of the NHS to be resourced and funded properly. Well, that's politicians. The lack of housing because governments won't build it. People's falling wages because the trade unions got smashed and we don't have proper decent wages protected in this country. The lack of good, decent jobs because they were stripped from the economy and replaced with hire and fire service sector jobs in all too much of, uh, of, of the country. You know, we could go on. These are all problems caused not by migrants and refugees, but they're actually caused by powerful people uh, who's in whose interest it is to make us angry with all the wrong targets. And look, we can say, well, you know, look, well, the Tories as bad as they aren't the Nazis. Of course, no one's arguing that. The point is, throughout history, 
those sort of politicians have used vulnerable minorities as scapegoats and we know where it can lead. That's the point that's so important. It's a precondition, even if it's not inevitable. And given not just the Holocaust, but other great uh, horrendous crimes that have been committed by humans to other humans, very important to make that point, not by sociopaths, by the way, very comforting for us to think these are sociopaths who commit these crimes. They're not. They're people like the people you know. You know, this is what's disturbing. As Jane points out, Germany was one of the most cultured, in inverted quotes, uh, advanced nations on the face of the earth. It had the most integrated Jewish population in Europe. And look what happened. A descent into unimaginable barbarism. Um, and, and, and I just think that's what people have to always be aware of, how quickly things can turn. Um, and that is a lesson. That is a lesson from history. And if we don't learn that lesson, then, of course, it's a cliche, but we are doomed to repeat. You know, it's often said as well, history doesn't often repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I think we can hear some, horrend some horrific and chilling rhymes. Anyway, this is what's very important. And also, you know, I can see people, someone in the, in the chat pointing, talking about colonialism, which is very important to talk about, because the, the, you can't understand modern racism without talking about colonialism, in which... Large parts of the, of the world, not least Africa, were dehumanized in order to justify their subjugation and their oppression. You've got a whole range of pseudoscientists in the 19th century during the scramble for Africa when European powers carved off Africa between themselves to basically come up with pseudoscientific rationale for why black people were inferior. And, and we, we saw the consequences in, in Congo under King Leopold. Uh, 10 million, it's estimated, were killed in, in the Congo uh, under his rule, uh, what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo, half the population, they were used as slave labor for rubber and all the rest of it, for example. Uh, we saw, we've seen, um, the, by the way, the German, German colonialism, primitive though it, it was compared to other pow powers, they committed genocides um, in Africa as well, in I think it was Southwest Africa, uh, where they were committed. And frankly, Britain in the 1950s in Kenya, you have the Mau Mau uprising of the Kikuyu tribe. And you've got huge numbers uh, who were put into camps, tortured and murdered. Barbara Castle, the Labour politician in the 1950s, was one of those prominently who spoke out against it. The point is over and over again, that the, the point, you know, about why do these crimes happen? Dehumanisation is always at the root. And you can see in this country a far right, which is being radicalised and according to the authorities, the fastest growing terror threat in Britain is the far right. We saw a migrant processing camp attacked uh, a few weeks ago by someone who then took their own life. He tried to throw, um, I think, Molotov cocktails or whatever at, to, in an attempt to, to attack the migrants who are in that processing center. Who is radicalizing these people? When we have Islamist terrorism, we say, who are the hate preachers who radicalize them? Well, again, when you look at the rise of far-right uh, far terrorism, it doesn't just have to be that. It has to, it's people being abused and attacked on the streets. People who are racialized, who are attacked um, on the streets, including people born here who are told to go back to where, they're com where they come from. These are all consequences of politicians using inflammatory and dehumanizing language. And it's so important we stand up to them, to that language, because of the lessons of history. Anyway, I've gone on a bit there and we've had a very long show, an hour and a half. I think it's the longest show we've ever had. But what a great uh, range of guests. I want to thank uh, Tom, uh, Tom Thons Phrase Doe, Tad Campwell, as ever, very regular, Oliver Kant, David Browter, also a brilliant regular, uh, CJ Mam. Rachel Rees, Stephen Calder. I hope I haven't missed anyone. Oh, dear. Oh, Fred Witherow, who says, thanks, Joe. Indeed. I think speaking for vast numbers of us there. Um, 
Brilliant stuff, everyone. The live show will be back next Sunday, as per usual. Uh, we will keep our daily videos um, and we will be doing more interviews. Um, if you want to suggest interviews, basically on patreon.com voice slash everyjoes84, I did a shout out for interviews last week. A popular choice was Hajun Chang, the economist, who's just written a book called Edible Economics. It makes very complicated economic ideas accessible. Do check out the interview, but that was a suggestion which people put to me. So we're going to go through some of the other suggestions that were put um, and interview some of those suggestions. Um, I'm also going to do a shout out for documentary ideas because we're going to resume the documentary series um, imminently. I have finished my book, which I'm very proud of. Oh, I've also got, um, I've got a, so a book coming out called The Alternative and How We Build It, which is several years overdue, which all of you have heard, I'm sure we talk about over and over and over again. Um, and uh, hold, oh, Liz Mutton here says... Um, uh, what an incredible stream. I love these live interviews. They're truly fascinating. Well, thankfully, it's my brilliant guests who do the work there. I just have to listen like the rest of you, but they were uh, all brilliant. And it's so moving, of course, to have uh, Joan Salter. Um, I've got a um, new my new Guardian column. Um, I'm going to add it as a banner. Here we go. I think you can click up. Does that work to click on it? I should have got someone who knows what they're doing, but they're not. They're no longer with us um, today. Um, so, uh, but you can see that I've done a, a, a piece in The Guardian, which is about the excess death figures. We have a spiraling excess death crisis in this country um, in which last year alone over 40,000 died. Uh, excess deaths, that's above the usual, at the five-year average, the pre-pandemic average, adjusting for ageing and population growth. That's about as many as killed by the Luftwaffe in the Blitz by the way, it's a huge number of people. Um, and up to Christmas, there was a about a, in the last two weeks of December, there was a 20% increase uh, or 20% number of excess deaths above that pre-pandemic average. Um, now, it's not directly down to COVID, a lot of that. It's to do with, for example, a collapsing NHS, which is not able to support people. It's to do with a crisis in the care sector, where often medically discharged patients can't be discharged from hospital because there isn't, they still need support and they can't, there isn't the beds for them. So it's really important we talk about this excess death scandal because it is the big scandal of the moment. It's a life or death issue and we need to talk about it more. So do check out my column on that if you've got time. Okay, please like and subscribe. Um, and um, we will, uh, oh, I need to say thanks again. Who does I say thanks to? to? To Liz Mutton. Yeah, we've already done that. Sorry. Um, we will, as I said, uh, be back with you tomorrow. Um, but I hope you're all very well. Thanks for this marathon stream. I'll see you facing. Lots of love, everyone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.